Well, I'm told that my great-grandparents refused to vote or get involved in politics. They had read Philippians 3.20, which says our citizenship is in heaven. So they believed that their Christian duty was to focus on living good lives and telling other people about Jesus and leaving the rest to others. Now, that may seem strange to us, but actually, historically, at least in the Christian church in the United States, there were many that held views similar to that until the 1970s when politics slowly crept into churches both on the right and the left. So if my great-grandparents were here today, they would look askance at me even taking up the topic of how to be a good citizen. Um, This would be maybe a shock to them. For them, the only citizenship that mattered was their citizenship in heaven. So the fact that I'm even willing to take up the topic may suggest that I have a little bit different view on uh, what it was that they thought. Otherwise, I wouldn't have wasted so much time or we'd have a very short sermon today. Now, while I don't fully disagree with them, by the end, what I want to come back to is an insight that they have that I do think is important to us, but I want to save that again till the end and start this morning by reading from a story from the life of Jesus. It's a story that some of you may be familiar with, and it occurred not long before Jesus was arrested, tried, crucified, um, and then again, and then resurrected from the dead, but it's uh, reflected a political controversy of the day. It's in Mark chapter 12, and if you'd like to follow along, you can follow along in the Pew Bible on page 1545, page 1545, but the words will also be on the screen. And I'm going to read from Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. It says, they, that is the religious authorities, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher... We know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. This is the word of the Lord. At first, this looks like a question about tax policy, but what's really going on here is a conversation, a debate about the relationship between religion and politics. The tax in question was not one levied on Roman citizens, but on those who were not Roman citizens, which actually was the majority of the Roman Empire. And that's why this tax was so hated by ordinary people. The coin that Jesus was asked for, or that Jesus asked for, was a denarius. It's about the size of a thumbnail, maybe a little bit larger. And on one side, the inscription said, Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, it said, high priest. This made the coin offensive to Jews in three ways. First of all, if you've read the Ten Commandments, you'll know that one of the things that they were asked was not to make any graven images. And the Jews took this very literally, and that was they never made a statue or uh, even an impression of the head or the face of an individual. The second way in which this is offensive is it says that Tiberius was the son of a god. And finally, that he was a high priest. So to people who viewed themselves as God's free people, this coin was a hated symbol of the political reality, that while they felt they were free, that they weren't and hadn't been free for hundreds of years. The Pharisees and Herodians, the two groups that came, were actually, I don't know if you want to call them enemies, but they were pretty bitter rivals. Uh, 
The Herodians believed that they could collaborate with the Romans. They could figure out ways to accommodate them. The Pharisees were purists. And what these two groups wanted to do was to draw Jesus into a controversy that they had between themselves. They wanted to trap him. If he said, pay your taxes, that's what the Herodians would have said, the crowd would have turned on Jesus and accused him of collaborating with the Romans. But if he told them not to pay the tax, then the religious authorities would have gotten word to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who would have arrested Jesus for insurrection. But Jesus was too clever for them. He asked to see this coin, this denarius, the equivalent of about a day's wages, so in our day it might be, say, $100. And he had this coin in hand. He just simply asked, whose image is on this coin? And when they gave the obvious answer, he said, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God is what is God's. And the text tells us they were amazed. In just 13 words in English, about eight words in Greek, Jesus escapes their trap and lays a foundation for us on how we can think about the relationship from with us to political authorities in our day. Before we get to the issues that Jesus raises, I want to get a couple of things out of the way. And first is a debate that often occurs among religious people, and that is whether we ought to be politically involved or not. So as I mentioned, my great-grandparents believed that they should not get involved. And some will argue that Christians should withdraw from politics, that it's messy, ugly business, and we just shouldn't, don't have any business being involved at all. Others make the opposite argument and end up acting as though politics is everything. By the way, that's on both the right and the left. These are people who believe that social change only happens through political action and the legislative process. Now, I'll just tell you one danger of that view, regardless of who's in power, is that those who believe that are tempted to give up Christian principles in order to get close to power. I would suggest that both extremes are unwise, that we should neither be like the Amish nor look to politics as our salvation. The second issue that we ought to at least get out of the way is historical context. I've had people tell me that the principles that have guided the relationship between Christians and government are no longer relevant, that the situation today is so dire that we need radical new strategies. I've heard people on both the right and the left say that. During this last year's election, um, I had people on both sides say to me, we've never had a more contentious election in American history. And I just said, really? Remember we had a civil war? Plus, in Jesus' day, things were far worse than they are today. For years, the ancient Jews had lived under foreign rule. The Romans were just the latest of a group of dif different groups of people who had ruled them. They lived at that time with high taxes, alien laws, brutal oppression, pagan practices all around them. They had no personal autonomy, and they lacked the right to vote. Rome was not a feel-good sort of empire, although it wasn't the worst that there has been in history. In modern times, you've had Nazi Germany, Stalin's Soviet Union, Mao's Cultural Revolution. All of those were far worse than what the Romans were like. But ancient Rome was no picnic. Yet Jesus said, pay your taxes, even if Caesar's face is on the face of the coin. And so... As with context, um, so with that context, I want to just take up the idea of what Jesus' guidance for us um, gives us to offer on two topics. And the first is, what do we do in order to act as citizens? That's the, the citizenship question. And then, how are we to do it? That's a question about civility. So let's take up first good citizenship. A first principle that we can I think understand about good citizenship is that is to honor those who are in authority over us. 
In Romans 13.1, St. Paul wrote, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, Paul's not saying that the government or the authorities are perfect, but he is saying that there is legitimate authority over us in our lives. So government creates structure and order for everyday life. It provides services that are important for each one of us, and we ought to honor those who create those, who enforce those. That means that government is God's idea. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors. And then in verse 17 in 1 Peter 2, he says, show proper respect for everyone, love the family of believers, fear, not, uh, fear God, and honor the emperor. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't speak up if we have a disagreement, but we must do so in respectful ways because we know that the government is established and given us by God. So in addition to honoring those in authority, another concept that we should understand is that of praying for our leaders. Often we want to complain rather than pray, and we're told first to pray. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 and 2, he says, I urge then, first of all, the petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So honor those in authority, pray for our leaders, and also fulfill your obligations. So Jesus literally told them to pay their taxes, but by extension, you could say that what he's also indicating is that they're to obey the laws, even maybe laws they don't like. Now, there are limits. There may be places where an authority tells us to do something that goes against something God directly commands, and we're pushed back in those occasions, but those occasions are relatively rare. A final principle of good citizenship is to seek the common good. We must live our political lives not merely out of self-interest, but with a genuine desire to see our fellow citizens flourish. That means we ought to seek justice for the oppressed at least as much as we seek justice for ourselves. That includes seeking to revise unjust laws, some of which may not affect us, but may affect the poor and the vulnerable. It means that we support economic policies that benefit the broadest number of our fellow citizens, not just carving out loopholes that benefit ourselves. Now, whenever you get into the subject of citizenship, it naturally sort of spills over into another topic, and that is patriotism. Roughly speaking, patriotism is love of country, and it's natural to love the familiar, the comfortable, the places and values that have shaped our lives. Love of country can lead to noble behavior, such as when people are willing to make sacrifices, even give up their lives, to preserve a way of life and the values of a country. On its own, patriotism is not a bad thing. Like anything, however, it can become idolatrous, but it's not inherently bad. So if you get choked up whenever you hear the national anthem at a game, it doesn't mean that you have tossed aside your love for Jesus. But healthy patriotism is not blind. It doesn't overlook the fact that every nation on earth has had its moral lapses. Patriots are not those who turn a blind eye to their nation's failures, but are those who call their fellow citizens to the noble values that have inspired a nation in its best of days. So healthy patriotism makes it harder for a nation to act in wicked ways. Unhealthy patriotism makes it easier. So it's okay to love your country. It's also okay for others to love theirs. But for the Christian, there are limits. 
We'll say more about this later, but patriotism should never take precedent over our, our loyalty to God. That's why patriotic symbols and rituals are appropriate in civil settings, but are inappropriate in places of worship. So good citizenship starts with what we do, but it continues with how we do it. That's why we need to talk about practicing civility. I've been thinking a lot about civility in the last year, year and a half. What concerns me is the loss of civility in public discourse. As a country, we've always had disagreements, but what seems different today is the way in which we disagree. If talk radio and cable TV and social media are any indication, we are disagreeing in increasingly virulent, violent, and embittering ways. And we're being polarized in ways that we have not in the past. It used to be, and I'm not saying this is right, but it used to be that parents, say Protestant parents, would object if their child decided to marry a Catholic, or Catholic parents would object if their child chose to marry someone who was a Protestant. But today, the fault line is not religion, but politics. And so over 50% of Americans say they would be upset if their child, let's say they're Democrats, married a Republican, or vice versa, a Republican marrying a Democrat. That is what divides us now, is politics. So how then can we learn to practice civility? There's much we could say, but let's start first with basic respect. I read earlier from 1 Peter 2, 17, show proper respect to everyone. What we need to understand is that everyone we meet has been made in the image of God. It is someone whom God, who Jesus died for, someone who matters to God whether we agree with them or not. In James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, he tells us not to curse another human being made in the image and likeness of God. So no eye-rolling, sighing, sneers, polemic language. Don't condemn. Rather, we ought to believe the best about others, even if we have deep disagreements. Basic respect and also humility. Civility is not niceness. It's not an unwillingness to argue for the truth as we see it. But we must nonetheless be humble. Humble people listen, seeking first to understand before making certain that they are understood. Humble people form opinions carefully. They remain open-minded, even allowing for the possibility that, hey, they may need to change their minds. Basic respect, humility. Civility also uses language that builds bridges rather than barriers. It's gracious and loving. It avoids harsh words and actions and a spirit of anger and strife. Hostile words, name-calling, shouting, hatred, half-truths, exaggerations have no place in public discourse. Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So while we may have strongly held beliefs, we must not be jerks. And even when we disagree, even when we have to speak the truth in love, we need to speak sometimes prophetically, about important issues, about life, about human sexuality, about poverty, materialism, the environment, economic justice, whatever the issue, we must do so with mercy and compassion and words of hope. And one final suggestion, make those conversations face-to-face. I don't think the best way to change the world is to yell at strangers online. We must do whatever we do as much as possible in a way that we can build relational bridges And I think that's often face-to-face. In fact, recently, last couple of years, I've refused even to engage with critics in email because it's so easy to be misunderstood. So what's at stake? 
Well, the truth is, is that other people are watching us. Those of us who call ourselves Christians need to understand that if we act in uncivil ways, that people will say, if that's what Christians are like, I don't want to have any part of that. In Acts chapter 2, Luke, who wrote both the biography of Jesus that we call Luke, as well as um, a book called Acts that describes the history and the growth of the early church, he gave a description in Acts chapter 2 of one of the first Christian churches, the church in Jerusalem. And he concludes his description this way. He says, they enjoyed the favor of all the people. They enjoyed the favor of all the people. May that be our goal. The Christians in the early church had no influence, virtually no influence, in the public sphere. It would be almost 300 years before there would be any Christian politicians, many more years before Christians began to formulate the way that they thought about the relationship between Christian principles and what a government might look like. And I'll tell you, it's risky to say that the Bible endorses any one form of government over another. Some try to make that argument, but I'm not, uh, I don't find that convincing. But God is, I think, far more concerned about the way in which those who find themselves with political power live that out than he is about the structure of government. It doesn't mean, though, that structure doesn't matter. In general, I think that representative democracy is better than the other alternatives because it incorporates checks and balances to keep power from becoming too concentrated. But I don't think it's something that God specifically endorses. Democracy, for example, has some weaknesses. One of those is that rather than the tyranny of a despot, it can result in the tyranny of the majority. Because sometimes, and this has happened, the majority can lose its mind. But there are a few biblical principles that I think ought to shape any political system. Let me give you four ideas. The first is that government should restrain wrongdoing. Government should be a place that secures peace through the rule of law, providing restraint against socially destructive behavior. A second principle is to promote justice for all, protecting the rights of everyone, recognizing the dignity of all who've been created in God's image, and that means standing up and speaking out for the little, the last, and the least. Thirdly, provide for the needs of the most vulnerable among us. That means the poor, children, women, the disabled, immigrants, anyone who for one reason or another finds themselves in a place where they're not able to argue for themselves, where they find themselves vulnerable from the abuse of others. And then prioritize the common good of all, of all citizens, not just the self-interest of a few. Now, as helpful as those principles might be, they don't provide specific guidance on some of the most pressing issues of the day. Now, I believe the Bible gives values and principles that we can use to discern the direction perhaps we ought to go, but the Bible doesn't give us concrete policies. It doesn't give us legislation spelled out in specific detail. The Bible does make it clear that we're to care for the poor, to care about the plight of immigrants, to be concerned for life, to care for the creation that God's given us, to support stable families, to fight systemic racism, to care about economic justice. But I don't think that it gives us specific policies that we ought to endorse. I tell you that I really try to restrain. I'm not an expert. I can't tell you specific policies that we ought to endorse. But I can tell you about the biblical principles that should underlie those things. I think it's careful, it's important for churches not to get deeply involved in advocacy for specific policies. That said, some of you may have expertise, may be involved in certain spheres of public life, and may have that expertise, and you ought to do that as an expression of your Christian faith.
What we also should acknowledge is that we all have different perspectives. My guess is that um, if we dug deep enough here, we'd have people who are on profoundly different places in terms of the way they view these issues. Maybe not the values, at least I hope, not the values that underlie and undergird those, but the way in which certain issues ought to be addressed. But we also have a great deal in common, and that may be where we need to put our focus. We all want safe streets, good schools, beautiful parks, clean water, and economic opportunity for all. We may disagree on how those are to be secured, but with the common values that we find in the Bible, we can perhaps work together even despite our disagreements. At the outset, I mentioned my great-grandparents, the fact that they didn't vote, they didn't get involved in politics. Um, they believed that the only principle that mattered was their citizenship in heaven, and that was what they gave their priority to. Now, as you can, can, can see, I, I don't agree with their conclusion, but I do agree with the impulse that led them to be careful about pledging their allegiance to a secular government. I believe we're called to respect our government, but that only God deserves our ultimate allegiance. That means that the state is not God. When Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, he's clearly saying that God and Caesar are not identical. Some things belong to Caesar and other things belong to God. We can honor God and the government. It's clear we have duties to our national, state, and local authorities, and we can give allegiance to those human authorities because, as Paul says, they've been put in place by God. There are times, though, when civil disobedience is acceptable, even required, if government asks us to do something that opposes what God asks us to do. In general, though, that's not the case. But what we do need to understand is that God's people are not linked to any one nation. The United States is not a nation chosen by God, and Americans aren't God's chosen people. Giving to Caesar what is Caesar's means we can support our nation, but the kingdom of God is international, and it's the place we need to give our ultimate allegiance to. This idea of the kingdom of God being an international kingdom goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. God had a conversation with Abraham, and he said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. So in other words, out of you, I'm going to build a great nation. And then he said, and through you, I will bless all nations on earth. We see Jesus as the fulfillment of that, the one who has blessed all nations on earth. On the complete other end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 7, um, something that was given to John by God we're told that when Jesus returns, that people of different languages and cultures and nations will gather together around Jesus' throne, around God's throne. So you can be from any country and worship Jesus. The crucial truth here is that we owe our ultimate allegiance to God. That's why in Exodus, the Hebrew midwives refused to obey Pharaoh, and they made certain that the boy babies lived it's why in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were told by the authorities not to preach about Jesus, and they just kept preaching. It's why Daniel prayed to God even though he knew that being caught would mean he would be thrown into the lion's den. So our allegiance to any government is limited. Our allegiance to God is not. When Jesus asked the religious leaders whose likeness was on the coin, the Greek word he used for image is icon. It's the same Greek word that's used in a translation of Genesis chapter 126 when it says, let us make man or human beings in our image, icon. So what are the things that belong to Caesars? Well, taxes, honor, respect, prayers. And what belongs to God? It's you. 
So just like there is a coin that we spend, that we give in order to fulfill our responsibilities to our civil authority, we are the coin that we spend in order to show our allegiance to Jesus Christ. Caesar gets some of the coins, but Jesus gets us. So you're made in God's image. You belong to him. The only way to give to God the things that are God is to give him yourself. So it's reasonable for us to ask, what am I holding back? Just like we have a duty to pay taxes, we have a duty to God to give him all of who we are. Now, here's the paradox about all of this. I believe that the best citizens are those who give their primary allegiance to God first and then to their country. Good citizens love their country. They love them enough to call them to their highest purposes, to the things that matter to God. In the lobby on the wall, uh, just... uh, out the door straight ahead, are the words of Jeremiah to the Israelites living in Babylon, people living a long way from home and from their beloved temple in Jerusalem. And they were struggling with how to live in a foreign land. Should they rebel? Should they isolate and withdraw? Or should they assimilate and become Babylonian patriots? God told them to do two things in Jeremiah 29.7. First, he said, seek the peace and welfare of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Then he said, pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So we're asked to do two things, to pray and to work, to see that our city flourishes. That's what we need to do. Now, it would be easy for us to become impatient. The kind of citizenship, though, that we're called to is patient citizenship, These words that were given to Jeremiah, or given by Jeremiah to the people, uh, were words that were to guide them for 70 years, the 70 years they spent in Babylon. So we need to learn to take the long view, to learn to be patient. That doesn't mean that we excuse evil or injustice. Instead, we're persistent in fighting those things. But it does mean that we don't pin all our hopes on a short-term political activism or a single election but we're committed to engagement over the long haul. We commit, though, not just to work politically, but to invest time and resources in the culture, in the arts, in science, in education, in business, and in the family. And in all these things, we pledge first our allegiance to Jesus as Lord, to God as King, and to the Holy Spirit who empowers us in all things. Let's pray. Father, make us good citizens, not blindly patriotic, but, Father, citizens who first give our allegiance to you and then to our nation, those who respect the authority, who honor them, who fill our responsibilities and pray for those who are in leadership over us. Father, may we be good citizens, modeling what it is to have healthy public discourse. And, Father, may we pray, asking that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name.